Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turkeltow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Thad McBride. Thad is a partner at Fastberry and Sims. And Evelyn Suarez, who's a principal at the Suarez firm. And today we're going to be talking about a topic they addressed in Compliance and Ethics Professional Magazine, which is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, or UFLPA. Uh, first, Evelyn, can you give us an overview of what the UFLPA requires? Yes. Um, the, first of all, uh, the U.S. has long had import bans on goods made with forced labor, child labor, and even convict, convict labor, dating back uh, past the Trade uh, Tariff Act of 1930. That's when the modern-day forced labor import ban was enacted. But in 2021, uh, Congress enacted the ULFPA, and it follows um, recent, a recent trend to strengthen or give forced labor import bans more teeth. So what it does is that um, it assumes that goods made in whole or in part uh, with um, labor from the Xinjiang region, which is the Uyghur region, is made with forced labor. So the way it works is there's a rebuttable presumption and if customs suspects that the goods are made in whole and part uh, in this region, then they will detain or stop the goods and you have to prove otherwise. That's gotta be a challenge. It's a lot different than most organizations are used to dealing with. Now, does it only apply to goods from the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, or does it apply to goods from elsewhere? The rebuttable presumption only applies to goods made in whole in part uh, in that region. However, um, what we have found is that uh, goods from many countries are being stopped because their supply chains involves labor, labor from the region. Yeah, and Adam Thad here, this is, this is something that I think presents particular challenges for companies because it's relatively straightforward to the extent you have a supplier in that region to know that there is a potential pretty significant potential that the goods you're getting will have been the result of forced labor. But given that supply chains are long and complicated and cross multiple countries, it can be really hard to know that an item you get from a supplier, even in the United States, but let's say even in Mexico, may have five, six, seven steps up the chain have come out of that region. And so as we'll get into, that's one of the real challenges for importers in the United States is not only looking to sort of its first line supplier on this to identify any risk, but then making sure that you can look all the way up the supply chain to identify potential problems. I have to add one thing. Uh, I have found that clients have had a lot of problems with tracing back to raw material. Yeah, I can imagine. But at the same time, it seems as if, you know, this is a growing risk area. I mean, we talk a lot about third party risk. You know, here we could be talking about seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth party risk. So that sort of leads to the question of what does an importer have to do both to ensure that the goods aren't created with forced labor and, and meet the other provisions of the act? 
Well, you know, it, it's a, a very tough law and it's tough to uh, deal with for importers and producers um, global, that have global supply chains. Um, so I, I, we suggest that, uh, and I think they have no choice, but X2 exercise due diligence. Um, and some of the things we talk about are mapping. You know, I've found that I've, clients send out questionnaires to their suppliers. You know, for example, they have suppliers in China, but the suppliers say that um, they have no connection to Xinjiang, but they might have operations there. And um, and so it presents challenges. Then you want them to prove that there's no commingling, for for example, of the raw materials. So steps, mapping, questionnaires, companies should have codes of ethics, policies and procedures. Then of course you'd want like supplier training. And then companies are resorting to use of third-party inspectors. And then of course there's a whole bunch of technologies that are being developed. But what I found, um, it's often useful to have a team and, and a plan. And one thing that is could be very particularly um, useful would be to do a dry run with a supplier. And I'm not sure all suppliers would be willing to do this, but you would trace a sample shipment and what to obtain what customs would want if they stopped your shipment. So you would have to trace through transaction documents and also shipping documents back through the supply chain. And sometimes this is not possible, but this is in the end what customs is going to demand if the goods are stopped. Yeah, and Adam, the idea of supply chain due diligence is not new, but what we've historically counseled our clients and I think a lot of companies have done just of their own volition is they kind of go one step down the chain. Now, some of the conflict minerals rules and Sarbanes-Oxley's rule, Sarbanes-Oxley rules that have come out in the last decade or so have maybe made it more important to go further down the supply chain or up the supply chain, however you want to think of it. But this creates a whole new level, as Evelyn was saying, of diligence that has to be done. And you really do have to go beyond your first line supplier. And, and that's what makes diligence in these cases. And that's why some of these technology solutions and third party providers are springing up. That's what makes them so important in this legal regime. In the article, you talked about applicability review requests. Um, can you talk about what they are uh, or an exemption from them? How do they work? Uh, basically, can you give a quick overview? Sure. Well, first of all, you have to realize this whole thing is new to everybody, including customs. The law was enacted in 2021 and it was first implemented in 2022. And it's really a real more gained full steam right now. Um, so, but Customs has a lot of documents and resources on their website, including a dashboard, which gives you statistics on the seizures and all that, plus um, where, where, what countries they're stopping. So let me get back to your question. Um, there are two main mechanisms of, that they discuss, applica applicability review requests, and another one is a request for an exception. So frequently companies do this when something's detained and you'd want to do it as quickly as possible, which means you need to be prepared. 
um, and, um, and you'd have to hurry up and wait because customs then would have to address it. But in applicability review, you, you would need to show that no part of your supply chain was involved in Xinjiang. That means then the rebuttable presumption would not apply. But you'd still have to show that there was no forced labor in the supply chain. The exception is different. Exceptions um, relate to where you have connections to Xinjiang, but you're, you can somehow prove, which I think is very difficult, that um, there is no forced labor. And one of the reasons why it's difficult is because it may be very difficult to get that information from the Chinese supplier. Evelyn, do you think it's likely that we'll get more guidance from customs on the types of things beyond what they've already provided, maybe examples of situations where they've granted the exception or other kind of informed compliance type guidance that, that can help importers? You know, I would hope so, but, um, but I don't really expect it. One thing I did not, did not mention is the other, uh, not only does the law create this rebuttable presumption for um, goods made in Xinjiang, it prohibits any goods made from an entity on what they call the entity list. They, they do regularly update this entity list, which is organizations that are known to have forced labor in their supply chain. Well, something to track, obviously, for people, um, which is both good and bad. I mean, it's obviously good knowing who's a problem. The hard part, obviously, also, though, is keeping up to date. Now, what are the best practices for compliance teams seeking to manage this risk? It sounds like it's far from a simple one. Well, uh, going, I think I've said this before, but the first thing is being prepared, um, and that is Get, you know, getting a team organized, a multidisciplinary team within your company and maybe with outside resources and um, figure out how you would respond. Um, there's another thing um, that I think, especially for bigger companies who have relationships with customs, you know, it's good to have that good relationship with customs, whether it's um, with their account manager or they have these centers for expertise and excellence. They're called C's. And the, they're the ones who are probably going to get the applicability reviews or the request for exception. So I'm not sure you want to reach out before you're targeted, but, um, but so, you know, I, they, it's good to have these relationships should something occur. Then the rest is normal compliance best practices, which I'm sure that can add to. And I think, thanks, Evelyn, and I think we've covered a good number of those. Evelyn mentioned them at the outset, and there there are quite a few. I, I think the only thing I would add is just, as with any diligence, but especially in this case, the importance of keeping good records of every step that's been taken, because you're going to want to be able to present that to customs in a really clear fashion, either sort of on a proactive basis. Evelyn and I were talking about this a little bit before the call about whether you could go into customs on a proactive basis with respect to a particular supplier and essentially have customs bless the party so you can, in theory at least, avoid forfeiture when something comes in from the Xinjiang region. But 
even short of going in proactively, if there does become an issue, you want to be able to present a really robust file to customs to show that you did everything you could and gained confidence as a result of the diligence that the product that you're importing was not the product of forced labor um, or derived from, from forced labor in any way. Adam, I just want to add one footnote. You had asked what kind of guidance we might expect from customs. Um, there, there's, it's conceivable that, that, that there could be rulings, but I, I haven't seen any. Uh, there could also be protests of exclusions could, which could, ex, uh, could result in rulings. There was actually one and it was on their website and it was taken down and it was never put back up. Um, others have complained that um, customs isn't very forthcoming with information when goods are detained. Like for example, if you have a blouse and they don't and they stop it, they don't tell you if the problems with the zipper or the thread. And therefore there's a lot of complaints about due process. I suspect, and I think other lawyers have the same feeling, that this will um, be challenged in the courts, probably in the U.S. Court of International Trade and ultimately in the Federal Circuit for the whether there's sufficient due process um, per, given to the importer. Well, it'll be fascinating to follow and certainly an ongoing challenge for compliance professionals and the businesses they work at. Well, Evelyn, Thad, thank you for sharing all of this insight with us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.